morning, everybody. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? God is so good. We used to sing that song when I was growing up. God is so good. He's so good to me. We come to chapter 6 in the book of Acts. If you've been following along, uh, so excited about this opportunity that we have to go through this very important book of the Bible. I want to remind us that the reason why we are going through the book of Acts is because the theme for this year is spirit of life. And that this year is all about pursuing the life-giving presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The book of Acts has been called the Acts of the Apostles, but it is probably more rightly called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because throughout the book of Acts, it is the Holy Spirit who acts. It is the actions of the Holy Spirit that the book of Acts is all about. And it's all about what the Holy Spirit did to pour out His presence and to pour out His power. But along the way, the church, the early church in the book of Acts, had to deal with some very human things and had to deal with some very common problems, things that are not uncommon to us today. And so here in the the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we find the first real crisis, internal crisis, that is, that the church had to deal with. You know, uh, you, you hear it all the time that the church is full of hypocrites, And in a sense, it's very true. But typically, the person who makes that observation is the worst hypocrite. (laughs) I I, I read a story this week about a a young lady who went to her pastor and said, uh, I'm leaving the church. And the pastor said, why? And she said, because the church is full of hypocrites. She said, when you're praying up there and reading scripture, everybody around me is on their phone looking at Facebook. And so I I don't want to be in a church where people aren't even focused on the Word of God and on Scripture, but they're focused on their phones. And the pastor said, no problem, go ahead, leave the church, but one thing I want you to do for me first. And he took a full cup of water. He said, I want you to walk three times around the church with this cup of water in your hand and don't spill a drop. And so she went and did it. The church was full of people. She did three laps around the church and came back and said, there, I'm done. Didn't spill a drop. And he said, great. How many people were on, your phone, on their phones while you were walking around? She goes, I don't know. He said, how many people were talking to one another and whispering and gossiping while you were walking around? She said, I don't know. He said, why not? She said, because I was so focused on the water that I didn't have time to look at what people around me were doing. And he said, that's how you should be in church, so focused on God that you don't have time to notice what the people around you are doing. The fact of the matter is the church is a divine institution. It was founded by our Lord Jesus Christ but it is also a very human organization. I hear a lot of people say, I don't like organized religion. So you like disorganized religion then. You just like chaos. There's some things that go with being a part of the local church that are just natural and stuff that we've got to deal with. And here in the, in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts, we see the first internal crisis that the church had to deal with, and it was what we might call an ethnic problem. What was happening in Acts chapter 6 was that there was discrimination in the early church. Now, you might say all of them were Jews, and yes, that's true. All of the members of the early church, almost all of them, were Jews, either Jews by birth or proselytes to Judaism, but they were all Jewish people. So in that sense, it was not ethnic because they were all of the same ethnicity. However, In the first century, there were two types of Jews. 
The first type is what they call Hebrews. The second type was what they called Hellenists. And the difference between the Hebrews and the Hellenists is that the Hellenists were victims of what's called the dispersion or the diaspora. The diaspora started in 722 B.C., 750 years prior to the birth of the early church. The diaspora started when the Assyrians came in, overthrew the northern kingdom of Israel, and drug a great number of their people off into captivity. The diaspora continued in 586 B.C., It actually started in 605 and culminated in 586 when the Babylonians came in, overthrew Jerusalem, and drug a great number of the people from the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. And so over the years, there were many waves of the diaspora. And because of that, you had Jewish people living in foreign nations around the world for hundreds of years. However, what tied them to Jerusalem What tied them to the nation of Israel was that no matter how far they had been scattered around the the world, three times a year they returned to Jerusalem for the three feasts of the Lord, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Passover commemorated their last night in Egypt when the blood of the Passover lamb was put on the doorpost so the angel of death passed by. The Feast of Pentecost commemorated when God came and sat on Mount Sinai and gave the law and the covenant to the people of Israel in the wilderness. And the Feast of Tabernacles commemorated their 40 years wandering in the wilderness where they lived in tents. And so during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would pitch tents in the streets of Jerusalem and they would live in tents for those seven days of the feast. So no matter how far you were scattered, no matter how long you had been scattered, you came back to Jerusalem with your family three times a year for the three feasts of the Lord. However, the primary distinction between the Jews of the dispersion and the Jews of Judea who were not dispersed was linguistic. You see, this young hipster right here, Jacob, he probably doesn't like being called a hipster. Hipsters don't like being called hipsters. This young man, if my wife was here, she'd be like, get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, is a second generation Korean, correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> Wait, were your parents born in Korea? Yeah. So, yeah, so you're second generation. So, his parents were born in Korea, immigrated to the United States, and then you were born in the United States, right? What city were you born in? Uh, Torrance. He was born in Torrance, California. Okay. How well do you speak Korean? Like second or third grade level. So, and that's just second generation. Can you imagine if 700 years from now, Jacob's descendants, 700 years from now, they'd be like, Korea, what's that? They probably won't speak, a, probably, probably one generation later, his kids won't speak Korean. Maybe a little bit because they got to talk to their grandparents. Their kids will probably have no interest in Korean. You can imagine these Jews of the dispersion had been dispersed 750 years ago. So they lost the Hebrew language hundreds of years ago. What did they speak? They spoke whatever their native language was of whatever country they were from, but they also spoke Greek, thanks to Alexander the Great. And this is why they're called Hellenists, because Alexander the Great Hellenized the ancient Greco-Roman world so that Greek became the common language 
of all of the nations. It's what tied all the nations together. And because of that, the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the 4th century B.C. so that the Jews of the dispersion could meet in what's called synagogues. When you read the New Testament and you see that word synagogue in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, a synagogue was a Greek-speaking place of Hebrew worship. It was the place where the Jews who had been scattered abroad could meet together and worship the God of Israel, and they read from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So they could read the law and the prophets, and they could worship the Lord, but they worshiped Him in the Greek language. Now, in the early church, you had Hellenists who only spoke Greek, and then you had Hebrews who spoke Hebrew and Greek because their native land was Israel. And so they spoke their native tongue of Hebrew and they spoke Greek. But the Hebrews kind of looked down on the Hellenists, right? It's kind of like Mexicans who go to Mexico but don't speak Spanish. And they're like, what is wrong with you? You know, they look at you funny. Or Koreans, like when Korean Americans go to Korea, the older Koreans, they look at you like something's wrong with you because you don't speak the Korean language. The Hebrews look down on the Hellenists. Somehow you're of a lower class of individual because you don't speak the Hebrew language. You've lost part of your culture. You've lost part of your heritage. You've lost part of your inheritance, okay? Now, that already there's, unspoken tension between these two groups in the early church. Now, remember in Acts chapter 4, we talked about at the end of Acts chapter 4 that there was all of this supernatural giving going on in the early church. Yeah. People who, were, who had extra properties were selling their investment properties and laying all the money at the feet of the apostles. And what did they do with that money? They did a daily distribution to meet the needs of the saints, which meant Every day, people who were poor and destitute, had no means of providing for themselves, had no homes, they would get in line and there'd be a daily distribution to meet the needs of the poor in the community of the local church. And there was this guy named Barnabas who sold his property, gave it, and Ananias and Sapphira lied about it and God killed him. That's last Sunday. Y'all got to listen to that. It's called, If You Lie, You Die. <laughs> um, so the poor among them, who were the poor among them? Primarily the poor among them were widows. Why? Because in ancient Israel, if you were a woman, the only means of providing for yourself that you had was having a husband or a grown son. If you had a son who was old enough to go out and do some kind of business and provide for you, then you could eat. If you had a husband who could provide for you, then you could eat. But if your husband died and you had no son and you became a widow, the only means of providing for yourself financially was prostitution. So the first priority of the early church was all of these dispersion Jews, Hellenists, had come in from all over the world, but they stayed because they got saved. And they said, we want to be a part of this early church thing. Imagine coming to a feast, hearing about Jesus, receiving Jesus, getting baptized, joining the early church and decided, I can't go home. I got to stay here. I got to stay and be a part of this early church. And then all of these Hebrews staying and being a part of the early church. But there were all of these widows. There were thousands of them. But now there's all of these widows. And the first priority of the, of the members of the early church was, we got to provide for our widows so they don't resort to prostitution. We got to protect the poor among us from going out and doing things that displease the Lord because it's the only way they can eat. And so the widows would line up every morning for the daily distribution. 
and the Hebrews would line up. The Hebrew widows would line up, and there were Hebrews up there just giving away the food and the money. And the first Hebrew lady comes up and goes, Shalom. And he goes, oh, Shalom. Oh, Baruch Ababe, Shem Aronai. Oh, so she, they're speaking the Hebrew language. And then he goes, here's $25, and here's two loaves of bread. Take this jug of milk, and here goes some eggs. And anything else you need? Okay, yeah, you be about your day. Have a good day. And then the next woman comes up, and she's Greek. And she's like, Kurios. And he's like, Kurios? Here's five dollars. <laughs> now go with God. <laughs> and the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. So the Greek-speaking believers came to the apostles here in Acts chapter 6. And they said, we got to talk to y'all because this ain't right. And the apostles were like, what's going on? And they said, there's two classes of people in this church. And if you speak Hebrew, you get $25, two loaves of bread, a jug of milk, and some eggs. But if you speak Greek, you get $5 and a half-hearted blessing. Go with God. Be warmed and filled. <laughs> now, notice how the apostles handle this. They hear the people out, and then they confer with one another. And then they come back out to the people, and they say, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. What's the translation? What the people were saying to the apostles, the Hellenists were saying to the apostles, we need y'all to come fix this. Those people you got doing this, we don't trust them. We need y'all to come fix. We need y'all to be doing the daily distribution. And literally, it seems that the way the daily distribution worked was that they had tables set up and they would come and serve the people because the word used means table waiter. And the apostles say, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait tables. So you guys seek out from among yourselves seven men who've got a good reputation, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll appoint them to oversee this. Do you hear what, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, you guys, we're, here's how we're going to solve this. We're going to give you authority over this matter. We're going to empower you to fix it yourself. Do you see early on in the early church, you hear, what, you hear what the apostles did? People came to the apostles going, there's problems in this church. And the apostles said, okay, you're going to fix it. <laughs> here's the solution, you. And people said, somebody needs to do something about this. And the apostle said, hello, somebody. <laughs> We're going to give you the authority to fix it. And so the people, they came back with a list of seven men. The first guy's name was Stephen. He was a man full of faith, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, had a great reputation among the people. The second guy's name was Philip. We're going to hear from both Philip and Stephen. And then there's five more dudes that nobody ever hears from again. The rest of the book of Acts. One of them is Timon. He left Pumbaa, I guess. <laughs> One of them's name was Nicholas. Irenaeus in the second century said that Nicholas was the father of the Nicolaitans who does not fare very well in the book of Revelation, Jesus said he hated that dude in his doctrine. 
So what we see with these seven guys who were chosen for what Peter calls this diakonos, which is translated service or ministry, is that it became a platform, their service or ministry became a platform either for, the, for whichever direction the trajectory of their lives was leading to, service became the platform that propelled them fully in that direction. And if the trajectory of their lives was leading towards godliness, then service, this appointment to serve the early church, was the platform that propelled them into that destiny. And if the trajectory of their lives was wickedness and evil, then this appointment propelled them into that destiny. And so what we find is that Stephen, the scripture says, he works great signs and wonders amongst the people. Now, you got to understand, this guy, they appoint, these seven men were not appointed to be elders, pastors, apostles, bishops. You know how, you, you know how we do these days. They call me the Reverend, the, the Mr. Reverend Brother Deacon Elder Bishop Apostle Benjamin. <laughs> the Reverend Doctor, Missionary Evangelist, Brother Benjamin I. Robinson, PhD, MD, and world-renowned conference speaker. We're so big on titles these days. Please, Paul came to Jerusalem, they called him Brother Saul. You know, come on, get over it. These guys were appointed to be table waiters. That's what Paul's, I mean, Peter says, give us seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit so we can have seven anointed table waiters. It meant to serve in the early church. There was such a high standard, even for serving in what we might call a menial capacity. Can you imagine showing up and we're having a church dinner and we say, we need seven people who are full of the Holy Spirit to serve the nacho chips at each table. Because you don't want nobody who ain't full of the Holy Spirit serving nachos at your table. Can you imagine somebody not full of the Holy Ghost serving you nachos? Mm-mm. And so Stephen, it says, he works great signs and wonders amongst the people. Meaning that he's about the task of serving nachos. He comes to the table. Here's your chips and salsa. You ordered the burritos. Here's your burritos. Right? You got tacos? Here's your tacos. Did I get your order right? And all of a sudden he notices that somebody at the table's got a broken leg. And he goes, you mind if I pray for that leg? Like, yeah, no problem. Father, touch that leg in Jesus' name. And the next thing you know, that person is dancing on the table and running and doing somersaults and flips because he got completely healed. And the people were like, dang. Wow. <laughs> now I see why our waiters need to be full of the Holy Spirit. That is, in, in the act of serving, there came the opportunity to minister. In the act of serving, see, here's what those seven could have done. Stephen could have said, no way I'm not going to serve tables. That's the role you want me to play in the church? Serving tables? I'm a prophet to the nations, not a table waiter. That's not my calling. That's not my call. I hear that all the time in the church. Will you serve in this capacity? That's not my calling. I don't have a passion about that. Do you know that the difference between service and ministry has nothing to do with passion? Service has to do with need. And ministry has to do with calling. And that you step into your calling through service. That is, if you're not willing to meet needs that have nothing to do with your calling, you will never step into your ministry that has everything to do with your calling. Yeah. 
Do you know what my first ministry was? Do you know what my first appointment in ministry was? My pastor called me when I was 17 years old and said, I got a great ministry for you. I said, what is it? You're going to go to the convalescent homes and serve communion to the sick and shut in who weren't able to make it to church on communion Sundays. And you're going to go to the convalescent home every other week and just pray for the elderly and just share a word of encouragement with them. I was so excited. I was like, yes, I'll do it. Yeah. I started praying four hours a day before every visit. I would go in the prayer room. Lord, anoint this. I'm going to pray for a person who's 127 years old. <laughs> but it was an opportunity to serve. Do you know I saw miracles in those convalescent homes? I saw people with concussions get healed. I saw people, I saw all kinds of stuff. I saw stuff happen. Why? Because if you're simply, if you simply have a simple heart of willingness that says, God, I will serve you in any capacity, but you do it full of the Holy Spirit, you're always looking for an opportunity for heaven to come. Yeah. Amen. 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 And so Stephen is working signs and wonders while he's serving chips and salsa. That's, that sounds like the name of a book. Signs and wonders over chips and salsa. Look at God. Won't he do it? Now, Stephen gets into a dispute with some individuals from a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And it says that they were from Cyril and Alexandria. First thing you need to understand, Cyril, the principal city of Cyril, was a city called Tarsus. And there's a very famous guy in the New Testament who comes from Tarsus. When we first meet him, his name is Saul. We later know him as Paul. By the way, there's, this is a spoiler alert. There's this idea that he changed his name to Paul from Saul. Wrong. His Hebrew name was Saul. So when he's in Jerusalem, they call him Brother Saul, even after his conversion. Six chapters later, they're still calling him Brother Saul. His Greek name was Paulos or Paul. Whenever he's in the Greco-Roman world, he goes by Paul. Whenever he's in Israel, he goes by Saul. He never changed his name, but that's spoiler alert. He came from a city called Tarsus. The synagogue of the freedmen was composed of a group of individuals who used to be slaves, but were emancipated by their masters. And so they were called freedmen. And in Roman culture, if you were a slave, the only way you could be emancipated is if your master emancipated you. And if your master emancipated you, he would accept you as a member of his family. He would adopt you as one of his sons or daughters so that you weren't simply emancipated as a slave, but you were brought into a family and made a citizen with all of the rights of a Roman citizen. You were also given an inheritance and you were a part of a family line. So the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen was comprised of all of these individuals who used to be slaves, but now were set free. Isn't that what the body of Christ is supposed to be? Amen. We're supposed to be the gathering of the freedmen. We used to be slaves, but our master gave us our freedom, emancipated us, and made us his sons and daughters, brought us into his family, made us citizens. Come on, somebody. Ain't nobody excited about that. <laughs> All right, let me calm down because I'm hollering up here. <laughs> but this synagogue of the freedmen were actually still slaves. 
Because even though they had been set free in the natural, they were still slaves in the spiritual. They get into a dispute with Stephen. And the scripture says that they could not resist the spirit and wisdom with which Stephen spoke. They could not refute him. They could not refute him neither biblically nor rationally nor historically. They could not refute him. And so instead, the scripture says that they induced people to tell lies about him. And they brought false witnesses forward and took him to the Sanhedrin. And the false witnesses declared that this man does not cease to teach that this Jesus is going to destroy the temple and do away with the customs and traditions given to us by Moses. Now, why did these individuals drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin and lodge this attack against him? Because they believed that he was in opposition to the law. And they loved the law so much that they had to destroy anybody who contradicted the law. Because they believed that the law should never be contradicted. But in order to destroy Stephen, they had to raise up false witnesses against him. And does not the law say, thou shalt not raise up false witnesses against your brother? Do you see how Machiavellian their thinking was? The end justifies the means. So because this guy is wicked, it's okay for us to use wicked means to take him down. Um, now listen, I normally don't talk about politics, but I got to say something this morning. First of all, Facebook has become the most toxic place for political discourse. And truth has become a partisan reality. It's true if someone speaks something that's in agreement with your party. And they can just pose it in the form of a meme and you'll buy it and repost it. Even if it's not true, you think it's okay to post that lie because the party that you're opposing is so immoral. And we think it's okay to use immoral means to bring down immorality. And that is hypocrisy. And that's happening on both sides of the aisle, my friends. The Democrats and the Republicans are doing it. And so I don't want you sitting there going, yeah, that's right, them lefties are doing it. Yeah, that's right, those righties are doing it. The righties and the lefties are doing it, and we're eating it up. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. Okay, now back to the story. I said it. That's enough. So they drag him before the Sanhedrin, and now there's a trial. And... They make their charges, and the high priest asks him, are these things true? Now it's Stephen's opportunity to clarify. And if it were me, my clarification would have went something like this. No, they're lying on me. I never said that. Let me clarify what I meant. I never said Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. Matter of fact, Jesus never said he was going to destroy the temple. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again on the third day. But, he said, but John tells us in John chapter 2, verse 19, that this he spoke of his body, not the physical temple. So y'all are misinterpreting Jesus. Y'all are misinterpreting me. I would have tried to clarify my points so that I wouldn't get killed. 
Because when they drag you before the Sanhedrin, you're about to get killed. <laughs> Stephen was not interested in saving his own life. He saw it as an opportunity for going gangster for Jesus. He gets up there, and the first thing he does is he retells Israel's whole history. He says, our father Abraham was living in Mesopotamia, but the God of glory appeared to him and said, get up out of your father's house and go to the place I'll show you, and I'll make of you a great nation. So he gets up and goes, even though he doesn't know where he's going, and he gets to Mesopotamia, and he's living as a foreigner in a strange land. God didn't give him any, not even enough of the land to put his foot on, but God gave him a promise. I will give this land to you as a possession to your descendants. And then Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And the patriarchs were jealous of the 11th son, Joseph, and so they sold him into slavery. And, and then Joseph went, and he became a slave, and then he became prince of Egypt, and then he reached back and, and brought his whole family, 70 of them in all, and they lived in the land of Egypt, and everything was great until a pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. And then he was treacherous with the people of Israel and made them slaves. And then 400 years went by, and then Moses was born. And he pleased the Lord, and God saved his life from the genocide that was happening as Pharaoh decreed that the firstborn of Israel should die. And he was in his parents' home for three months, and then Pharaoh's daughter took him in and raised him as her own. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit the people of Israel. And when he visited the people of Israel, he saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite. And so he, he defended and avenged the Israelite and struck down and killed the Egyptian. And the next day, he saw two Israelites arguing with one another, and he tried to recognize Reconcile them to one another. And then he says this. He thought that they would understand that God would redeem Israel by his hand. But they did not. Listen, listen to the logic of Stephen. This Moses thought that they would understand that God would redeem Israel by his hand. But they did not. And so the man looked at him and said, Who made you our ruler and judge? Are you going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard that, he fled for his life and went and lived in the land of Goshen. And he lived in the land of Goshen for 40 years. And then God came to him in the burning bush and said, I've heard the groans of my people in Egypt. Therefore, go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses went in and brought them out. This same Moses that they asked, who made you our ruler and judge? He was the one that God made the ruler and judge. Do you see what he's doing? You see where he's going? What he's saying is you don't have a good track record of discerning who's the real servant of the Lord and who's not. And then he goes on and says, this is the same Moses that said to the people of Israel, one day God is going to raise up a prophet like unto me. And you're going to hear this prophet. And whoever doesn't hear him is going to be cut off from his people. And then he says, you stiff-necked hypocrites. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And you killed the ones who spoke to you of the coming of the just one. But God has raised him up and made him Lord and Christ. Do you see what he does? He says, you guys don't know. You ain't got no discernment. Neither did your fathers. Every prophet that God raised up, it wasn't till hindsight that your fathers looked back and said, he actually told us the truth. In Jeremiah's day, they didn't hear him. But after, after his death, they were like, you know, he was a real prophet. We're going to save his book. <laughs> Daniel, 
Ezekiel, all of those prophets, it wasn't till hindsight that they looked back and said, you know what, this is real. Even Moses, remember when Moses first went back and he went to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, you're going to make your own bricks. And the people of Israel came back to Moses and says, God's going to judge you for what you've done. You haven't delivered. You're not the deliverer. All you've done is put a sword in his hand to kill us. You missed it. Now look at this. I'm going somewhere. Trust me. Are you still with me? I'm going to finish this up in like 10 minutes. Don't worry. Thank you. Now look at this. Verse 51. Stephen brings this to a close. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. It don't sound like a guy who's trying to save his own life. <laughs> He's like, you bunch of religious hypocrites. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels. And I think he looked right into the eyes of the, first, of the false witnesses at this point and said, and have not kept it. Verse 54. Listen to this. When they heard these things... They were cut to the heart. Does that remind you of anything? Acts 2.37, the end of Peter's sermon. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Two different contexts, same result. Peter preaches, they're cut to the heart. Stephen preaches, they're cut to the heart. But when they're cut to the heart, there's two different responses. Remember, Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fragrance of God. It's the fragrance of Christ. But to some, it's the fragrance of life leading to life. And to others, it's the fragrance of death leading to death. When Peter preached to that crowd, it was the fragrance of life. Stephen preaches to this crowd, and it's the fragrance of death. Peter preaches, they were cut to the heart and said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Stephen preaches, they're cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. How demonic is that? I don't even know what that... <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> I mean, what? I don't even know what that looks like. But whatever it was, it was extremely aggressive. <laughs> he felt very unsafe. I'm about to get to what this message is actually about. Verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He was walking around the church with a cup of water and everybody was gnashing their teeth at him. But he was so focused on heaven that he didn't even notice the gnashing of the teeth. He wasn't looking at the way people were treating him and meditating on how mistreated and how abused he was. Instead, he simply focused his gaze on Jesus so that it didn't matter how they responded to him. The only thing that mattered to him was that he remained faithful and true to the one in the heavens. They gnashed their teeth at him, but he gazed straight into heaven. He, looks up, he lifts up his eyes 
above the people and looks to the Lord. And at that moment, the heavens are open to him. Listen, the heavens will never open to you so fully as the moment at which you lift your gaze above the way people are responding to you. And set your eyes on God. When you look to God in a moment when you're being mistreated, instead of looking to the people who are mistreating you, instead of focusing your gaze on what's happening outside, you're simply lifting up your gaze and setting your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It don't matter what you do to me. What matters is what he thinks of me. It don't matter what you say to me. It matters what he says to me. And at the very moment they're gnashing their teeth at him, listen to what Stephen says. He says, verse 56, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Ha! He gets a vision of Jesus. And he tells them about it. I would have been like, hey, y'all calm down, calm down. Y'all look real angry right now. <laughs> Don't be hating on a brother. <laughs> this sounds like it's about to get violent. We're all brothers. We're all Jews. Instead, he lifts up his eyes above it. Now watch this. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, verse 58, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I read in one place that the person who held the coats was the person who ordered the execution. Saul of Tarsus is there. Remember, synagogue of the freedmen, Cilicia, Tarsus, the principal city. This is Saul's own synagogue, probably. He's probably in the room. He's probably one of the members of the synagogue of the freedmen who is disputing with Stephen. He consents to his very death. He holds the coats of those who kill him. And he's driven outside of the city and they're throwing rocks at him and they're stoning him. Now watch this. Verse 59 and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. Most of us would have been cursing at them. Instead, he's calling on God. Meaning, at the moment of his deepest pain, he becomes more intent upon lifting up his eyes to heaven than ever before in his life. He focuses his gaze on the heavenly vision and he calls on God. How do you endure hardship? You've got to focus your eyes on the heavenly vision and you've got to call on God. As he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60. Watch this. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Lord, 
Do not charge them with this sin. These are his last words. As they're stoning him. Does this sound familiar? I, I remember another guy doing that. On the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness is his last act. And this was a prophetic act. See, you, we have no clue how prophetic forgiveness is. Forgiveness is so prophetic. Watch what Stephen was saying. Lord, I have no clue how you're going to use some of the men and women that are in this crowd throwing stones at me right now. Some of them you are going to encounter in a powerful way. You're going to change their lives, and you've got a glorious destiny in store for them. But when you meet them and change their lives, I want it on record that I do not hold this sin against them. Because I don't want it to be in their hearts or minds that what they did to me is going to hinder them from entering fully into the destiny that you have for them. Meaning, I am not going to confine these individuals to what they are doing to me today. I will not define them by what they're doing to me today. Let me tell you why this is so important. How did they kill Stephen? But what was, what was the impetus for the stoning? They lied on him. They killed Stephen with accusations. You know who else did that in the Old Testament? And her spirit continues to do that today? Jezebel. They killed, that was a Jezebel spirit. They killed Stephen by accusing him. When they could not refute him, they said, let's just accuse him. Let's just hurl accusations at him. Romans chapter 8, verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, what does it say? There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, therefore, now, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Stephen refused to allow their external accusations to become an internal accusation. Meaning he was not getting stoned thinking, Lord, did I do something wrong? Lord, am I out of your will? Lord, maybe they're right. Lord, did I go overboard? Did I go too far? He was not allowing any internal accusations. The condemnation was coming at him, but it was external, not internal. And he avoided it, not by self-justification, but he didn't think about himself at all. He just looked up to the throne of God. He lifted up his head. And he overcame the accusation of the enemy by two ways. Number one, by not allowing any accusations coming at him to come into him. And number two, by not allowing the enemy to implant any accusations against those who attacked him in his own mind. He overcame the accusation of the enemy by not allowing himself internally either to be accused or to accuse. And in our day and age, we tend to do one or the other. Maybe I don't accuse others, but I sure allow myself to be accused. You say, you're your own worst critic. No, Satan is your own worst critic. You just have a habit of believing him. 
or I don't allow any accusations against me in my heart, but I sure allow accusations against others because some people deserve it. I mean, all of us can think of stuff that somebody did to us that's worthy of condemnation, but I don't think anybody nailed you to a cross or threw stones at you until you died. So I think Jesus and Stephen, they had it a little worse than you and me. But yet both of them wanted it on record as their last act. I am neither receiving accusation nor releasing it. There's no condemnation. And no condemnation means I don't receive any condemnation, nor do I give any condemnation. I neither accuse nor am accused. I don't receive it, and I don't release it. I don't give it, and I don't take it. It doesn't mean that he justified what they did and said, well, you know, they did the best. No, 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 it was wrong. He said, this is a sin, but he said, don't hold it to their charge. It doesn't mean we can't call sin, sin. It doesn't mean that if you've been wronged, you can't acknowledge that you've been wronged. You've got, listen, in order to forgive, you've got to acknowledge that you've been wronged. Amen. you got to say, what that person did to me was wrong, but Lord, I forgive them. But actually, I need to correct myself because neither Jesus nor Stephen said, Father, I forgive them. Both Jesus and Stephen said, Father, you forgive them. Because when your soul is in agony, you don't have the power to forgive. And in the agony of his soul on the cross, Jesus did not have the power to forgive. So he didn't try. He didn't say, Father, I forgive them. He says, no, Father, you forgive them. I need you to forgive them. You know why? Because at the end of the day, my forgiveness doesn't mean anything. My forgiveness will not set you free, but his forgiveness will. So, Father, you forgive them. What is this passage of Scripture all about? It's all about how one man entered into his destiny through service. But when he entered into his destiny through service, he fulfilled his destiny through forgiveness. If there's one thing you're going to have to be careful of, if you believe you have a destiny in God and you have any intention to forgive it, I mean to fulfill it, the primary way the enemy will seek to trip you up is bitterness. I'll never forget a week before I got married, and somebody can come to the keyboard while I say this. A week before I got married, I was living down in Southern California. My father flew down to spend a day with me. And he sat me down at the table. He said, son, I have a couple things to share with you. But the primary thing I want you to know is that to be a married man you must avoid bitterness at all costs. He said, son, the enemy tried to use bitterness to destroy my marriage to your mother. The bitterness started in the first grade and in the first year of our marriage, it almost killed our marriage in the 13th year until God showed me that I had been bitter. He said, son, forgive quickly. And my father called me again the night before Living Hope was born. He called me on January 3rd, 2004. The next morning, we were getting ready to launch Living Hope. He said, son, I have a word for you. 
Never forget this. The one way the enemy will seek to destroy your ministry is through bitterness. And so from this moment forward, no matter what happens to you, do not harbor bitterness. I told you that he would try to use it to destroy your marriage. Now I'm telling you he'll try to use it to destroy your ministry. Son, forgive quickly. What we don't realize is that unforgiveness is, is an attack of the devil against your own destiny. Unforgiveness is not, it doesn't even hurt the person you're not forgiving. Matter of fact, they can go through their whole process. Even if Stephen hadn't forgiven Saul of Tarsus, he met the Lord on the road to Damascus a few chapters later. The Lord changed his whole life. He still would have went on to his destiny, but Stephen would have had to stand before God with bitterness in his own heart. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The crazy thing is, we don't have the power to forgive in ourselves. Sometimes forgiveness is a daily process where the enemy reminds you of what was done to you. And it happens to me all the time. I go through seasons where something was done to me and I'll, I'll remember it and I'll start to rise, my heart will start to rise up in the memory of it and then I go, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I just meditate on those words of Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to lift my eyes above it. Lift my eyes up to the throne of God. There might, their teeth might be being gnashed at me, but I'm going to lift my eyes up above the throne of God. Stones of accusation might be thrown at me, but I'm going to lift my eyes up to the throne of God. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Until all of a sudden, I feel the burden lift off of me. And I know that forgiveness has happened in my heart. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Now I'm free. And guess what happens? Tomorrow, it comes back again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, maybe tomorrow I remember another component of it. And I got to go through that process of forgiveness all over again. You know why it's so important? Because nothing's going to keep me out of my destiny. I'm not going to let this keep me out of my destiny, so I'm going to forgive. And I'm going to lift up my eyes. Stephen, he was killed by the synagogue of the freedmen. But at the, end of the, at the end of the story, he was the only one who was truly free. The synagogue of the freedmen, they were actually all enslaved. Stephen was the only one who was free. You know why? He wasn't bound by the poison of bitterness. He was free to lift his eyes above it. And that's why he remained full of the Holy Spirit all the way to the very end when he breathed his last breath. And I believe this morning that there's freedom in this house, that God wants to free some of us from the poison of bitterness so that we might pursue our destiny in its fullness I say today that the devil has been defeated. He thought he could keep you bitter. I'm saying he's been defeated today. The word of God has come today to expose that lie of the devil. He thought he had derailed your destiny. He thought he had stopped you in your tracks. But I'm telling you, the enemy has been defeated. God's word doesn't return to him void. It accomplishes what he sent it to accomplish. And today he sent his word to deliver us from bitterness. Huh. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.
Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that the bile of bitterness is being siphoned from the hearts of each and every one of your sons and daughters in this place that lifts up their eyes to you and that there will be freedom in this house. I thank you for it. While our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. First of all, I just want to give an opportunity for anybody here who does not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior to make a decision to begin your journey with Jesus. Responding to this invitation is not about making a, a, a commitment to perfection or even holiness. It's simply making a decision to pursue Jesus and to walk with him and to learn of him for the rest of your life. And I just want to give you this opportunity. If you're here today, you've never really made a decision for Jesus, or maybe you made a decision for Jesus but never solidified it, or you just walked away and you just want to get that right, I just want you to lift your hand. Nobody's looking around. Just lift your hand so I can, I can pray for you. I see that hand right there. Thank you, Lord. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. One is worth it. One is so worth it, even one. You know, every angel in heaven rejoices over one person. Every angel in heaven rejoices. And so, Lord, we just rejoice over this one individual that indicated today, I'm ready to make a change. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to walk, I want to confirm my confession of faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. The one who lifted your hand, if after the service you could just come grab me and I just want to hug you, shake your hand and say a prayer with you. Now, I believe there's some business that we got to deal with before we leave today. We're going to deal with this thing right now. You don't have to be bound by bitterness for another day. I, I want to say again, this is not about justifying what happened to you. Listen, it wasn't right. I want to say to you before the Lord, what they did to you was not right. What was done to you was not right. And it's okay to allow your heart to confess that. It was not right. But Father, forgive. That's, that's the only prayer. God, that wasn't right, but Father, forgive. Father, forgive. And God wants to heal us today of that, the bile of bitterness. He wants to heal us of it, and he wants to set us free. Why? Because he wants you to fulfill your destiny. And you've been carrying this person or people around with you for years. You're going to let them go today. You're going to let them, let God deal with them. You're going to deal with you today. And God's going to set you free. And right now, I just want you to take just, no, we're going to do this. If that's you, you say, that's me. I need to deal with this today. That's me. I just want you to stand up and come stand up here at the altar. Something powerful happened.